Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the American Association of Visually Impaired Attorneys, uh, AVIA uh, presentation. We have uh, two very interesting workshops today, uh, and the first one I'll introduce right now, and it gives us great pleasure uh, and honor to reintroduce our distinguished uh, guest speaker. I say reintroduce because he has joined us before. It's Professor Bill Pyatt, uh, Professor of Law at St. Mary's University Law School in San Antonio, Texas. Professor Pyatt is a 1975 University of New Mexico Law School graduate. Uh, are you there? Yes, I'm Hello. here. Good, sorry. Uh, who, has, who has served uh, on the faculty of a number of prestigious uh, law schools and universities over the years. Uh, he currently, and for many years, has been at St. Mary's, as I said. And from 1998 to 2007, he was the dean of St. Mary's Law School. Currently, he teaches constitutional law and very importantly, has a recent book published last summer, which is uh, all too timely about a subject that has engaged us a great deal, uh, and a particular aspect of that subject that many people don't know much about, that is slavery in the Southwest. And the book, which was co-authored with Moises Gonzalez, is entitled Slavery in the Southwest, Gender Zero, Identity, Dignity, and the Law, and is published by the uh, Carolina Academic Press. Uh, and uh, hopefully... Uh, Professor Pye will have a, a moment or two to mention that uh, as well during his presentation. He's going to talk to us, as he has done in previous years, about the Supreme Court's most recently concluded term. Well, I guess not quite concluded yet. There may, in fact, even be one or two more decisions, uh, but they're substantially concluded. Uh, he, and uh, this is the 2019-2020 term. Uh, and a lot of exciting things happened. Many bad ones, a few unexpectedly good ones, depending on your point of view. Uh, I guess from any point of view, that would be the case. And without further ado, then I'm going to turn it over again with our thanks and great interest to Professor Bill Pyatt. Bill, take it away. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, I am honored by your invitation and very happy to be able to participate with you once again. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm particularly grateful to Chris Prentice for extending the invitation and for helping me to understand the difference between time zones. Uh, I'm in a different time zone from you guys. And uh, fortunately, Chris was able to get my attention in time to make sure that I was able to join you. So anyway, we're going to talk about the recent decisions of the Supreme Court. And as Stephen, as you point out accurately, we're still waiting on a couple of decisions. Uh, the COVID situation has disrupted a lot of schedules and a lot of events. And that includes the way the Supreme Court has uh, put together its decisions and made those available. But what I thought I would do is I'd start with perhaps the most recent one and one that I think is going to have pretty large impact across the United States. Uh, and that's the case of Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue. One of the things that's interesting about this term is that this is the first full term since the arrival of Justice Kavanaugh. And there had been numbers of folks speculating about his presence on the court and the assumption that once he joined the court, there would be a 5-4 conservative majority that would rule together in the block. And we found out that's not the case. Uh, that's because the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts, has taken what appeared to be some conflicting positions in cases. And uh, many are referring to him as the new Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy, of course, was a swing justice who would swing between the liberal and conservative blocks, at least according to some perspectives. And uh, we're gonna take a look at some of the cases this term that illustrate Justice Chief Justice Roberts' role 
Uh, some would characterize it as a continuation of the notion of having a swing justice. Others have some perhaps less charitable views about the uh, conclusions that Chief Justice Roberts has, has reached. And anyway, we'll try to get into some of that. Although I'm going to try to just play it as closely as possible to avoiding any political discussions. Although, of course, nobody really in their right mind thinks that these decisions are made in a political vacuum. But anyway, let's get to the first one, the most recent one, decided on June the 30th, and that's the case of Espinosa versus the Montana Department of Revenue. And here's a, I'm going to discuss it, but here's a spoiler alert. The Supreme Court held that if states have programs that provide scholarships to students who attend private schools, states may not, consistent with the First Amendment, exclude religious schools or students at religious schools from participating in those programs. All right, just back up for a minute. We all have the First Amendment memorized, but just kind of a refresher, the first introduction First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. All right, as we're all well aware, there is tension between these two proclamations. On the one hand, states and the federal government cannot establish a religion. On the other hand, states and the federal government and local governments can't prohibit the free exercise of religion. And sometimes these line up and sometimes there's some divergence and there's some conflict. And so the Supreme Court has been called on repeatedly to try to strike a balance and help us understand how that plays out. So basically what was going on in this case is there were uh, children who were attending a, a school in Kalispell, Montana, Stillwell Christian School. And their, ch their children were not able to participate in a program that the state of Montana had set up. The state of Montana had set up a scholarship program to assist people who were sending their kids to private schools. And what would happen is people could make, would make a donation that could be a tax-exempt donation, and then the proceeds from the exemption would go to fund scholarships. And what had happened in the administration of the scholarships is that the state of Montana in, in internal litigation had concluded that there is a provision in the Mo uh, Montana Constitution that prohibited uh, the use of government money, quote, for any sectarian purpose or aid to any church, school, academy, seminary, college, university, or other literary or scientific institution controlled in whole or in part by any church sect or denomination. That's a provision in the Montana Supreme Court. It is a variation of what were known as the Blaine Amendments. Uh, 37 states in the United States still have Blaine Amendments. 14 of those have strict prohibition on the participation of religious schools in state programs. And apparently the history of the Blaine Amendment was founded in a, a lot of motives, but one of which was a bias against Catholic uh, schools. And so Montana and its Supreme Court decided the children that are going to this particular school 
were not going to be eligible to receive a subsidy. They weren't going to be able to participate in that program. When it got to the Supreme Court of the United States, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled five to four that states can't exclude religious schools from programs that provide scholarships to students that are attending private schools. All right, so in this case, at 5-4 majority, the five, the majority, consisted of what are traditionally viewed to be the conservative bloc, that is Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Thomas. And of course, Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are appointees of President Trump, and the liberal justices, the remaining justices voted against this majority, Sotomayor, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Kagan, Justice Breyer. So that 5-4 split is the 5-4 split that probably most people anticipated was going to rule most of the determinations of the Supreme Court. And we're going to see in just a minute that isn't true. All right, think for just a minute about the financial impact of this case and think about the impact on not only private education, but the public education. Obviously, for, from a private educational perspective, students are now going to be able to attend schools with assistance that they otherwise would not be able to attend. The students that go to these private schools are not going to be participating in the public schools. And part of the dollars that otherwise would have flown to the public, uh, to the public schools will no longer be available. On the other hand, public schools are funded by taxpayers, generally by property taxes in most states. The students that are going to private schools are being sent there by parents who are paying tuition at the private schools, but who are also paying taxes to support the public schools. If all of the private schools were to close down, and the theory is that taking some funds away from public education is gonna weaken public education, but think about what would happen if all of the private schools were suddenly to go out of business and all of those students had to attend the public schools with no basically additional greater revenues, the public schools would then have a tremendously large number of new students enrolled. So there is some public interest in keeping the private schools afloat. On the other hand, the American Federation of Teachers, through its president, Randy Weingarten, in commenting about this case in the New York Times, said she feared that the court's ruling would be used, quote, to defund and dismantle public education. She says, quote, we should be priorita prioritizing additional resources for public education and other vital social programs and not diverting them to private purposes, end quote. All right, so in this case, again, we've got the, the friction, the conflict between the two religious freedom aspects of the First Amendment. Those who were opposed to using these funds felt that this would be an establishment of religion for a state to use public funds to help fund private religious schools. On the other hand, in this case, the majority felt that denying public school, uh, denying private school students the opportunity to use these funds would burden their free exercise of religion. Justice Roberts said that that no aid provision in the Constitution of Montana imposed a heavy burden on people of faith. 
and a heavy burden on their ability to educate children of that faith. He said, quote, the prohibition before us today burdens not only religious schools, but also the families whose children attend or hope to attend them. He said the court had long protected parents' ability to direct their children's religious upbringing. He says, quote, the no aid provision penalizes that decision by cutting families off from otherwise available benefits if they choose a religious private school rather than a secular one and for no other reason. Um, there's a lengthy concurring opinion where Justice Alito describes the general history of these Blaine amendments, which he said were prompted by prejudice against Catholic immigrants. And uh, in January, when this case was argued, Justice Kavanaugh had commented that the Blaine amendments were, quote, rooted in grotesque religious bigotry against Catholics. All right, so the bottom line is, after this opinion, there is a, a, an ability of states to continue these procedures of offering tax exemption to raise scholarship money and making the scholarship money available to private school students, including those who are attending private schools, uh, religious schools, religious private schools. All right, so that's Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue. And if anybody had any comments or questions, we can do that, or I'll take up another one in just a few minutes. Okay, so you have uh, 52 attendees, but nobody has the hand up right now. Okay, well, that's good. Well, I, if I, it might just mean I put everybody to sleep. So uh, I'll continue. But if I do trigger an interest in uh, some question that we can discuss, I'll be more than happy to do it. All right. All right. Okay, let's take up another one. Uh, abortion. A 5-4 opinion in a case decided on June 29th. The case is entitled June Medical Services versus Russo, a case that came out of the state of Louisiana. Spoiler alert, the court ruled that a Louisiana law violated the Constitution when it required doctors who were going to perform abortions to first have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. All right, this is a 5-4 decision. This is four members of the so-called liberal group, Justices Sotomayor, Ginsburg, Kagan, and Breyer, joined by Chief Justice Swing Justice Roberts in a 5-4 majority. All right, so what happened is the state of Louisiana had passed a law requiring that anybody who provides abortion and any abortion providing clinic, the, any abortion providing clinic would be able to send patients in a medical emergency to a nearby hospital. And that means that whoever is performing the abortion at that facility has to have admitting privileges in the nearby hospital. And geographically, because of the, and demographically, and as a practical matter, there would only be one. Uh, all but all the abortion providers in the state, except for one, would be forced to close uh, just because of the proximity requirement of having to have someone close by to a hospital. When this case came up for discussion, it was kind of interesting because the Louisiana statute was almost identical to one that the state of Texas had enacted. 
when that was challenged, uh, a lower court decision upholding, um, I'm sorry, striking the constitutionality of the Texas statute was announced by the Supreme Court of the United States. And in that case, Justice Roberts had voted with the conservative bloc, I believe it was a 4-4 tie. And so as a result, they couldn't overturn the lower court decision that had stricken the state statute. Justice Roberts found the Texas statute to be constitutional. And then in the next term, in an almost identical set of facts, Chief Justice Roberts now says, the almost identical statute is now unconstitutional. And his justification for this is precedent. He says, argues essentially that once the Texas case is decided, that creates precedent, although it wasn't a majority of the Supreme Court that made that determination. And so he's reluctant to overturn precedent. The other perspective is that Justice Roberts has moved over and sided with the liberal bloc for whatever reason, including some speculate because that seems to be the majority political opinion at this point. Some think it's because he has personally announced his uh, unhappiness with President Trump. Who knows? He doesn't have to answer to anybody. He's the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. He has basically a lifetime appointment. And that was the way the framers of the Constitution established the Supreme Court and the federal courts to give judges and justices almost complete independence from a political process. Uh, justices, of course, could be removed under the impeachment process, but that's not going to happen. But short of an impeachment process, someone who takes this, this role is going to serve during a term of good behavior, which is basically during their, their lifetime. So Justice Roberts, as all other members of the Supreme Court, is insulated from any political concern, voted with the liberal bloc in a 5-4 decision and ruled that the Louisiana law created an undue burden on a woman's right to obtain an abortion. And of course, dissents, and there was some concern that it wasn't really women that were bringing the complaint. It was physicians who didn't want to have their practices limited. But in any event, uh, that was an important Supreme Court decision decided that uh, it's actually consistent with the Texas provision, but raised some eyebrows regarding Justice Roberts' vote. And it wasn't just this case that raised the eyebrows. There's a couple of others that we'll talk about in just a few minutes. All right. So again, if anybody has a comment or a question before we continue. Um, there, okay. So there are no hands raised, but what I'll do is uh, I will go ahead and tell uh, members of the audience that uh, if you're on a computer to raise your hand is Alt-Y or Option-Y if you're on a Mac. Uh, if you're on a phone with a touch screen, you'll have to um, activate the More button and then find the Raise Hand button. Uh, and if you've dialed in, it is star nine. So uh, we'll give people a couple of seconds to and see what happens and then I'll, I'll let you know. Oh, we have a hand. Yes. Okay, we have CJ, and CJ, you are now able to talk. But CJ, you'll, you'll have to unmute yourself. There we go. This is the first time it's worked. Good. 
um, the decision of this in Judge Roberts. Um, I was always concerned. It's a different subject, but with the impeachment, where how he acted within the impeachment, uh, with only one vote um, from Governor Romney uh, against impeachment. Did Judge Roberts, is there any understanding of why he didn't have any say about anything or he didn't take it? Okay, uh, under the Constitution, the uh, Chief Justice presides over impeachment proceedings. And I think Chief Justice Roberts, following the historical example, the, you know, it's, this is a rare proceeding, but in the past, the Chief Justices have taken the position that they were going to act as basically the facilitators, that they were not going to cast a vote, that they were going to leave this to the, to the Senate. Uh, respecting what appears to be the balance of power, checks and balances set out in the Constitution. Uh, of course, if he had decided to vote, there would be no way to effectively challenge it. Uh, probably the Supreme Court is going to say that whatever political process the Senate works out, if the Senate rules says he can cast a vote, he could have casted a vote. But I think he probably took the view that's supported by by what the role of, of a judge should be, and that is the judge doesn't vote with the jury. The judge sits and makes determinations on ruling and admissibility of evidence, procedures, etc., but doesn't actually participate in the decision. So I think that's why you didn't hear much from Justice Roberts, except he acts as a role of the, as a constitution assigned to him to conduct the impeachment hearing, the trial. Okay. Other than that, he just he probably wouldn't get involved. No. What if, what if what if the vote against impeachment came to be three three governors voted for impeachment? Would that make a difference with with Judge Roberts? Okay, this is a real hypothetical, but let's go with it. So you had to have a two thirds vote to convict. So you're suggesting what if it was like a uh, somehow it ended up right on the line where there needed to be a tie broken. Right. I, my, here, here's my guess again. My guess is he would not have voted. My guess is if you don't get to two thirds, it's a, an acquittal. And my guess is he would not have casted a vote to convict under those circumstances. But again, that's just my guess. Right, okay. I, I often was curious about that. Okay, thank you, it's a good question. Anybody else before we continue? Yes, we do have another one. Hang on. Okay, uh, phone number ending in 7844. You can now talk. Bill, uh, Steve, Steve Mendelson here. I was just wondering. There we go. Hi, uh, uh, Bill. Hi, Steve, Steve Mendelson here. Going back to the Montana Department of Revenue case, I, I, I want to make sure that people understand uh, that uh, the state would have been free to refuse funding for any private schools. The issue arises only because they gave money to some private schools, but not others. That's correct. There is no requirement that a state provide a mechanism for, for putting money from that process into, into private education. But once they do that, the Supreme Court says, you can't exclude private school attendees from participating. But you're absolutely right. Anybody else? 
Okay. Uh, I'm going to, unless somebody else has something else, I'm going to go ahead and continue. Uh, let's see. The next case I want to talk about is another case. This was decided uh, June 29th. Uh, Sela Law LLC versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. All right. Congress had set up this bureau, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, provided that the president would name the director but didn't provide any mechanism for what would happen if the president decided he or she did no, no longer had confidence in that director. So the bottom line is the president had fired the director. There was a challenge. The Supreme Court heard the case in a 5-4 decision. They affirmed the right of the president to fire the director. And again, this 5-4 decision was the traditional conservative block, including Justice Chief Justice Roberts, Justices Kavanaugh, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, and the minority view was the so-called or considered traditional liberal bloc, Justices Sotomayor, Ginsburg, Kagan, and Breyer. All right, so we have three of the most recently decided cases, and all three are 5-4 decisions. And in this most recent one, the independent agencies matter, Chief Justice Roberts has gone back to the conservative block. Any questions, comments? This is probably not one that is going to create a great deal of excitement on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, the independent agencies vote, but it does have some important uh, political ramifications and governance implications. Uh, there do not appear to be any hands raised. Okay. So I think you're good. All right, let's move on to another 5-4 decision. These. 5-4 decisions are not unusual. And this one has to do with immigration. And this has to do with the DACA program, the program that President Obama initiated that basically allows uh, close to 700,000 people who are in the United States without authorization, but who came here as children because their parents brought them here. And they became known as the Dreamers and the issue is whether or not those dreamers get to stay. Backtrack a little bit to the Obama administration. For years, people have been asking President Obama, immigration advocates, to please announce a decision, announce a provision to protect these children who are, you know, obviously they didn't do anything wrong. They came with their parents. And so the argument was give them an opportunity to remain. They argued that these kids didn't come here on their own that many of them now had no ties to a home country. Many of them grew up here speaking English, educated in our schools, didn't know people in the home country, couldn't speak to anybody in their home country if they were suddenly uprooted and sent back, and that in effect, they should be allowed to remain, all right? Now, people weren't asking, well, some asked, but they didn't get from the president. They didn't get permission for these people to become permanent resident aliens. They didn't get permission from these people to become citizens. What they got was ultimately, and the president, by the way, President Obama repeatedly said he didn't have the authority to do that. He said, I'm not an emperor, I'm not a king, I can't just wave my hand. Immigration control is in the hands of Congress. Congress has to pass these laws. But after years of political pressure, President Obama changed his mind and said, okay, I agree. We will create a, a group of people 
that we will exempt from deportation right now. All right, all that means is they're not gonna get kicked out. And then he gave them authorization to go to school and to work. But they don't have the right to vote. They don't have the right to become citizens after any length of time. They can be in this DACA category forever and ever. And the reality is if you have a proclamation by a president, a subsequent president can reverse that proclamation. And of course, that's exactly what happened. President Trump had asked Congress repeatedly to enact legislation basically protecting the, the dreamers. He had even offered it as a negotiating position. Fund the wall, he said, and we'll give you DACA. Uh, the Democrats did not want to go along with that. So the president then attempted to withdraw the DACA protection. And the case went up to the Supreme Court of the United States and the issue being whether or not the president of the United States had the power to withdraw these DACA protections. All right, it's another strange decision in a couple of regards. First of all, it's 5-4. And in this case, Justice Roberts is joining with the liberals. So we have Justices Sotomayor, Ginsburg, Kagan, and Breyer joined by Chief Justice Roberts in ruling that the Trump administration cannot immediately shut down DACA. They said that the president didn't follow the Administrative Procedures Act. In other words, there wasn't a lengthy explanation of the reasoning why studies, etc. So even though President Obama could create the program without that type of approach, President Trump, they say, cannot constitutionally withdraw. Does that mean the DACA people get to become citizens? No, not because of this opinion. Does it mean they get to become permanent resident aliens? Again, no, not because of this decision. Does this mean that President Trump can immediately deport these people? No, because the court says for the time being, they're protected under this DACA plan. But does this mean that the president could never undo DACA? And the answer is no, the president could do it because this case was remanded, sent back to the lower, uh, sent back to the government and the government will now, if it wants to continue pursuing the removal, go through those steps, the hurdles that the Administrative Procedures Act sets out. And if all of those steps are followed, then theoretically the president could withdraw DACA and that withdrawal would withstand a constitutional challenge if it goes back up to the Supreme Court. Why in the world did the court go through this? Why in the world are they going to tie up the government agencies over and over again when ultimately the president probably can remove this DACA procedure any number of possible explanations. A lot of them lie in the political, a lot of them lie in the practical. Um, one of the very practical concerns is how do you deport 700,000 people who are educated in this country, some of whom are educated, most of whom have, large, have long standing ties and affinities to the United States. Do you arrest them or do you send them do you send them back to a country where they have basically little connection with the system? It's a, it's a political mess. And maybe what the Supreme Court is doing is punting, giving the Administrative Procedures Act time to play out, giving Congress to think about it, giving the electoral process to take place, and maybe leaving it in the political decision-making hands of the Congress, although Congress has shown very little 
enthusiasm about doing anything. Even when the Democrats had majorities in both the House and the Senate, they did not have an interest in creating a, a formal DACA program. So this is a political hot potato that's going to be tossed back and forth. And just to make sure we all have a, those of you that don't have an immigration background, the real question in immigration law is who gets to live and work in the United States. So citizens are at the top of the political priorities. And you become a citizen by being born here under the 14th Amendment. Almost everybody who is born here is a citizen. And if you're not born here, you can go through a naturalization process, which means first you become a permanent resident alien common terms, it's referred to a person who holds a green card. After you've held that term for a number of years, then you're eligible to take the citizenship exam and become a citizen. How do you become a permanent resident alien? Congress has an extremely complicated system, depending on family connections and depending on work skills. Right now, people who have work skills have a good shot at getting a visa, meaning getting to be admitted, becoming a permanent resident alien and staying here. People with just the family connection, unless you're married to a U.S. citizen, to be overly simplified about this, the number of visas available based on family connections is relatively small and the lines are relatively clogged. In some cases, you may have to wait 20, 30, or 40 years to qualify. So the bottom line is the 700,000 block of people is a large block that somebody's going to have to deal with. Uh, either just continuing to renew DACA, which means they never become citizens, they never get to vote, they just kind of hang around. Their kids are born here, become citizens. If they marry a citizen, they may be able to use that as an opportunity to become a citizen, but otherwise they're just here. And there's no easy mechanism for dealing with that at this point. And it's going to be thrown back to the executive branch, to the legislative branch, but the Supreme Court and the judiciary have pretty much said, okay, you guys work this out, we're, we're not going to deal with it. Okay, that's probably all I need. Probably all I need to say about DACA. Anybody have any questions or comments about that case? Um, okay, so you do have a couple of hands up. All right. Uh, first one is a phone number ending in six nine eight three. And uh, uh, if yes, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, this is Jim Crot. I have a question about the previous case. Uh, what was the argument of the? minority as to he who hires cannot fire. Basically, they were arguing that Congress had set up this process and did not give the president this absolute authority to fire anybody. Uh, they argued Congress set up the program, Congress gets to make the determination. Struggle between the, con between the legislative branch and the executive branch. Thank you. Sure. Okay, next is a uh, phone number ending in uh, 8106, and uh, that person should now be able to, to talk. Oh, wait, no. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I had a question about the broad implications of the DACA decision, because it seems like the administration has taken shortcuts to enact numerous uh, administrative changes in environmental and uh, uh, business type of problems. 
And I wonder if all of those shortcuts would make all of those changes that Trump has made subject to challenges. Uh, maybe, except that all presidents do that. Usually what happens when Congress enacts a law, as you know, they, they create the law, but then it's up to the executive branch, the administrative agencies in the executive branch to promulgate the regulations put those regulations into effect through the publication process, et cetera. And that happens an awful lot. Like even with Obamacare, uh, one of the challenges that keeps coming back is whether or not employers have a religious right to refuse to provide abortions or even contraception. And the reason that comes up is Congress didn't say that. Congress set out this broad parameter of, of Obamacare and then left it up to the executive branch. Then the executive branch ran with it. And the executive branch, Health and Human Services, actually they didn't even enact all the rules immediately. They farmed it out to private investigators, think tanks, came back with some ideas and then adopted that. So in every, in every administration, you're gonna have presidents because of the power to execute the laws, expanding and sometimes contracting what Congress has tried to set out. So it is a political struggle between those two branches of government. And most of the time, the feds uh, are going to be left to fight it out because in many cases, the Supreme Court is going to say, we're not going to get involved if it's just a political squabble between the two branches. In, in this case, where, where there's the absolute concrete question, well, does this person get to continue in power as a director of an agency or not? They've got to do something with it. They can't just punt on it. It can't just like kind of sit around. But you're absolutely now, I was right. talking about the immigration implications uh, as by as you know in the DACA decision um, how that came down because the court basically said that they didn't follow the rules to change the regulations and it seems to me that Trump has tried to skirt all the rules when trying to change regulations. Okay, well think about this for a minute. This is not a regulation that was enacted uh, pursuant to a statute. This, these were a set of implementations that the Obama administration created that Congress didn't vote on. So you, you have one chief executive creating all of these rules and you have another chief, that's a difficulty when you don't have a, a statute, a congressional buy-in, then it's just one president says something and then the next president says something else. And even, the Supreme Court wasn't even saying that President, President Trump couldn't undo it. They just said he has to follow the Administrative Procedures Act. And that's probably a little bit thin. I mean, the, the majority uh, says that, that the Administrative Procedures Act applies. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But the court says it does, so yeah, now it does. But all that means is the president just has to go back through a procedural step and then maybe it's going to come back to the Supreme Court after that. But the bottom underlying problem is this was not a congressional act. This was a declaration okay. of the President of the United States, just like in the current situation. If the current president makes some announcements and pronouncements, and, that's, and then if he is either not reelected or eventually someone else takes over, does that mean everything he says has to be undone through a lengthy, wieldy Administrative Procedures Act process? The president announced, for example, he wants to create a, a statuary garden Suppose the next president doesn't like it, hasn't been built yet. Can that next president just say, no, this is stupid, I'm not going to do that? Maybe not. Maybe now the new president's going to have to go through the Administrative Procedures Act to try to undo an executive declaration. 
Okay. Thank you. Next, um, next you have Deborah Hammond and uh, Deborah, if you Hi go there. Ahead. There you go. Okay. So, um, so the Administrative Procedures Act um, is an act that I, are you going to be talking about the? Uh, it didn't make it to the Supreme Court. So there was a case where Betsy DeVos, when she came in as the, as the uh, head of Department of Education, um, just sacked the entire operating procedures for the agency and changed things around so that you could only ever file one OCR complaint in your entire lifetime with the agency. And so the, the National Federation for the Blind, the Coalition for Parent Attorneys and Advocates, and uh, the NAACP teamed up and filed a lawsuit against the Department of Education for failing to follow the Administrative Procedures Act. So the Administrative Procedures Act is not just like, I don't think cumbersome process, it's like critical process that allows us as Americans to have a say in um, the changes that are made in these agencies to the way that they operate you have a comment on that? But again, you're talking about the, the, the litigation you're involved with involves implementation of a statute. And again, DACA was not created by statute. The operating procedures manual is actually um, not a statute. I know the that. Operating procedures manual is how they operate, right? Correct? No. No. When oh. you're, okay, going back to the, to the Secretary of Education matter. The statutes that you're talking about that she implemented and that she was making the changes, those were actions that Congress had taken and then left to her to, to implement. DACA, what I'm trying to say is, was not enacted by Congress. It, well, wasn't, it wasn't like Congress had enacted and, the president, and President Obama signed into law this statute providing for this protection from deportation and then President Trump came along and undid it. No, it's just a simple proclamation by a president. So what I'm suggesting, forget which political side you're on, just think about the principle of a president making a proclamation and the next president not being able to undo it. Because if that becomes the law, then this president may have put in and may put into effect a lot of things that the next president may not like. And you may have to go through the Administrative Procedures Act, even though there's no congressional statute, it's just somebody off the top of their head issuing a proclamation. Yeah, that is problematic. The good news is the case settled. And they will have to go through the Administrative Procedures Act and restore the, the uh, uh, they also eliminated 12,000 cases that were sitting before them as Obama era cases as opposed to American citizen cases. So yes. those will all be resurrected in fact. Yeah, and, and, and I'm not unsympathetic. Uh, I'm just talking from a purely legal perspective, trying to see the difference between regulations that implement a congressional yep. act and regulations implementing a presidential proclamation. Yeah, that's good. Thank so, you. Okay. Uh, good question. Okay. Uh, do you, I have uh, CJ and uh, CJ, you should now be able to talk. Hello. Okay, I, I'm sorry, I don't hear any 
No, I know. Uh, sometimes they have trouble finding a mute button, so what I did is I hit the ass to unmute, and it kind of jumps out in front of them. So we'll give it, we'll give it a second, and if not, uh, we'll just have you go on and... Uh, sure. Yeah. I can come back to it. Yeah. Okay, so let me move on to another one, and this one is a, a really interesting case. This is another split decision, and the split is is noteworthy. So this has to do with gay and transgender rights. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination based on sex. Does that mean that gay people or transgender workers are covered? Are they allowed to continue to work without discrimination based on their orientation or the transgender status? And in this case, the Supreme Court ruled that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 does protect them. This was a 6-3 decision, all right? And the majority here consists of the four members of the liberal bloc, but it also consisted of Chief Justice Roberts and the author of the opinion was Justice Gorsuch. So it was a 6-3 decision. And in this case, Bostock versus Clayton, and then another one that involved transgender rights, the plaintiffs had alleged they had been discriminated against based on being gay or transgender. The lower courts had ruled that they, well, it was split, but bottom line is it appeared that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did not protect against this type of discrimination and the Supreme Court ruled that it did. Okay, minority, uh, the minority opinion on the court argued that Congress is the one that should be making this change. If this was a definitional change, it should be a matter of legislation, not a matter of the Supreme Court of the United States making the determination. The majority opinion discussed the, the realities of what this meant to people who were working and what the intent of Congress initially was to protect against discrimination. And the bottom line is the court now says that employers cannot fire people based on sexual orientation. And this, by the way, is very consistent with where the public stands on the issue. The New York Times ran a piece, took a poll on, on this issue. And here was the question that they asked. Some people believe that it should be illegal for employees to be fired based on their sexual orientation because it is discrimination on the basis of sex. Other people think that it should be legal because it is not discrimination on the basis of sex. What do you think? And the overwhelming majority said that it should be illegal to fire someone based on sexual orientation. And this included 90% uh, of the Democrats, 84% of independents, and 74% of Republicans. So overall, 83% thought it should be illegal which leads some members, some people to suggest that maybe what the Supreme Court is doing, uh, Chief Justice Roberts in particular, maybe even Justice Gorsuch, is they're kind of holding their fingers to the political wind and making decisions based on what they think the majority of the American people feel should be the approach. Uh, on the other hand, if there was an overwhelming majority of people that have the sympathy, it would, if it was ever brought before Congress, it would pass. Uh, but the bottom line is the Supreme Court in the 6-3 decision has now said that's not a question anymore, that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 now covers discrimination under the sexual orientation and transgender 
categories that, that is discrimination based on sex. Okay, any other questions or comments on that case? Okay, hang on a second. Um... Okay, no, there are no hands up. Okay. All right, let's see. Um, juries, April 20th, Ramos versus Louisiana. Does the Constitution require a unanimous jury verdict to convict a defendant of a serious crime? Uh, some states had provided less than an absolute majority. In this case, the court ruled six to three that the Constitution does require unanimous jury verdicts to convict the defendants of serious crimes. And this was a, a true split decision. We had three members of the so-called liberal bloc and three members of the so-called conservative bloc uh, lining up to create the majority. And in the circumstances now, it's, it doesn't have a whole big implication because most states already had unanimous jury requirements for criminal convictions of felonies, but now we know that's a matter of the Supreme Court's law, matter of the Constitution, according to the Supreme Court. Okay. Uh, anybody question, comment? There do not. Okay. Nope. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I've got one more to tell you about, and then I've got three or four to tell you that are still waiting to be decided. And then I hope I get a few minutes to talk about uh, slavery in the Southwest issues and answer any, any questions. So here's, here's the last one that I'm going to talk to you about that's been decided, decided on May the 7th. And here's the good news, it's unanimous. So whew, don't have to worry about this one. Nobody's going to quarrel with this. An interesting case involving public corruption. So you might recall that there were two associates of former Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey. And they shut down a bridge to tie up traffic because they felt that one of the local officials on one end of the bridge was not being supportive enough of Governor Christie. And they created a scandal that became known as Bridgegate. And they got convicted of public corruption crimes. And long story short, they challenged it. Kelly versus United States. Nine to nothing decision, convictions got overturned. So we know now as a matter of constitutional law, I guess we can shut down bridges on our political opponents. They said it's not nice to do that. It's not a good thing to do it, but it doesn't rise to the level of a federal crime. So all the people are stuck in traffic. I don't know if this gives them much consolation because uh, they got stuck in traffic and now the convictions of the people that caused it got overturned. So don't tell anybody about this one if you have friends in New Jersey. But everybody on the Supreme Court said you can't uphold the conviction in this case. Okay, so let me talk about some cases that we're still waiting to hear. We're still waiting to hear if the Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania is going to come back. So the Little Sisters of the Poor are Catholic nuns. Uh, they operate worldwide. They provide hospice services. And because they're Catholic, they don't believe in abortion and they don't believe in contraception. Under Obamacare, some of the regulations of Obamacare require that employers who have more than, I believe it's 50, but I could be wrong, 150 employees, they have to provide healthcare insurance. And under the regulations that were adopted by HHS, those insurance policies have to provide access to abortion and contraception. 
But the Little Sisters of the Poor said we can't do that. And the Supreme Court of the United States had already ruled that employers couldn't be forced to provide contraceptive services. So the Obama administration says to the Little Sisters of the Poor, I'll tell you what, we understand your objections. Just sign off on a document that says we're opposed to providing contraception, but we'll go ahead and allow our insurance companies to provide it. Little Sisters of the Poor said we can't even sign that because even though we're not paying for it, we're still approving it and we're not going to do that. All right, there are some horrific penalties applicable under the Obamacare Act. If an employer does not provide the required, doesn't provide insurance period, there's a set of penalties. But if the employer provides insurance and doesn't provide the requisite coverage, the penalties are incredibly larger. So there's actually financial incentive for an employer just not to pay for healthcare insurance at all and have to pay that fine, or there was. And Little Sisters of the Poor were, had the option of just not providing the insurance to their employees, but they said, no, as a matter of our conscience and our religion, we want our employees to be covered. We just don't want to either provide the insurance. We don't even want to approve the insurance companies do it. They'd entered into some kind of a temporary settlement where the there would just be kind of the Little Sisters of the Poor would look the other way, and if the insurance companies wanted to, out of the kindness of their hearts and their deepness of their pockets, provide it, well, they'd be free to do that. So it was sent back to see if this was going to be resolved, uh, and the court is now considering whether the uh, Trump administration can allow employers to deny contraception coverage to female workers on religious or moral grounds. That's the way some people frame it. The other way to look at it would be whether employers can be forced by the federal government to provide contraception through the Obamacare mandates. Uh, up to this point, anytime there's been a challenge, the people who do not want to provide the coverage based on religion say, look, we're not stopping any woman from obtaining an abortion or from obtaining contraception. If the federal government wants women to have contraception, the federal government can provide it. What we object to is the federal government making us, contrary to our religious beliefs, provide something that the federal government could do by itself. So this case is probably going to come back and uh, there's no immediate, I don't think there's any immediate urgency. The Little Sisters of the Poor continue to operate. If they ultimately lost this case, they'd be fined out of existence. All right, here's another one that's kind of interesting that we're still waiting to hear about and involves uh, Native Americans. And I'm going to talk about Native Americans in a little while. But there was a case called McGirt versus Oklahoma. And the court is considering whether much of Eastern Oklahoma would, could be considered an Indian reservation for purposes of deciding the applicability of state or uh, Indian tribe criminal jurisdiction. So that's gonna be an interesting one that the court hasn't ruled on yet. Uh, religious employers, case Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey, court is considering whether employment discrimination laws, to what extent they apply to teachers at religious schools, whether there's some type of a religious exemption to, uh, to teachers in, involving uh, their, their teaching within the confines of their religion. Uh, here's another one that the Supreme Court has just flat out punted on, and that has to do with whether the president has to provide financial records to house committees and to New York, to, to house committees that's Trump versus Mazars, and it looks like the court has said they're not going to take that up this term. 
So we're not going to have an answer to that before the election. And then there's also the case, see the Trump versus Vance, courts considering whether Mr. Trump can block disclosure of his financial records to New York prosecutors, not the House Committee, but New York prosecutors. And let's see, I think there's still another one, uh, Shafalo versus Washington and Colorado Department of State versus Baca. <coughs> Excuse me. Court is considering whether states may require members of the Electoral College to vote for the candidates they had pledged to support. And that might be interesting with an election coming up in just a few months. Okay, that was kind of quick. Anybody have any questions so far on Supreme Court cases? Yes, we have, we have one hand uh, raised up and it says Stephen, Stephen Phyllis. So um, they should be able to talk now. I will hit the S to unmute button. We'll give them a second. Yep, there they go. Um, but it doesn't look like they have a microphone connected because they are talking. We can't hear them. Okay. All right, well, I'm gonna, I'll talk about something else for just a little while, but then I'll make sure I come back to see if we have any, any questions on the cases that we've just discussed. Okay. So, so thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk just a little bit about my most recent book. So I've written a number of books, essentially on the issue of human rights. And the most recent book that I wrote that was published last summer is entitled Slavery in the Southwest. And the subtitle is Henisaro, identity, dignity, and the law. Let me tell you a little bit about what it means. And this arises, I think, in the backdrop of our current discussion about slavery. All right, so we are all aware of the horrors and the injustices of the African slave trade. But what many people don't realize is that there was a tremendously large slave trade occurring in the Southwest, remnants of which actually, unfortunately, still exist. Before the Spanish arrived in the New World, different tribes were, Indian tribes, indigenous tribes, were conquering each other, taking slaves. You can probably think of the examples in Mexico where tribes would capture other members of the tribe, hold some slaves, sacrifice others. That was widespread throughout the Southwest. So I point out in the book that no race has a monopoly on virtue or vice. Uh, the United States did not invent slavery. Uh, slavery was the existence on this continent long before Europeans arrived. Slavery apparently has been practiced as long as there have been human beings. Uh, there's references to it in the Old Testament, obviously. Uh, Moses led his people out of slavery. There are rules even in the New Testament dealing with slavery. What has gone on in the Western Hemisphere involves what we're familiar with, with the trade of slaves brought from Africa. But the Spanish arrived in what is now Mexico, moved north with the assistance of some native tribes, conquering other native tribes, coming up into the American Southwest. When they got to the American Southwest, this is an overly condensed version of history, they decided to set up settlements, colonies. They originally came looking for the cities of gold. They'd heard rumors that there had been cities of gold established, that when the Moors overran Spain, that several bishops fled in these large ships filled with gold and they had come to what is now the American Southwest. 
and set up these cities of gold. The Spaniards had heard these rumors. The Spaniards pushed north through Mexico into what's now New Mexico looking for the cities of gold. And you can just imagine as all of these Spanish arrive with all their military equipment and everything and they approach the natives and they say, okay, where's the cities of gold? You can just imagine some of the natives saying, uh, yeah, yeah, there's cities of gold. It's just, just up there. Keep going. Keep going. You're on your way. Keep going. Let's get to the next. Keep going. They went all the way to what's now Kansas and they didn't find any cities of gold. They came back to what's now New Mexico in the, in the American Southwest. They established settlements and they quickly realized they needed a labor source. The labor source was obvious for them. It was the natives. The Spaniards went about a system of enslaving the natives. They did so with the sometimes cooperation of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church took the position they were trying to civilize people and bring religion to them. Long story short, the Spanish even realized they needed the military assistance of natives because there were intra-tribal rivalries and tribes would sweep from the plains and wipe out the Spanish establishments or attack them. So the Spaniards offered some of the people they had basically enslaved the opportunity to act on behalf of the Spaniards. And they called these folks Henisaros. They named them after a Turkish word, Yanisaries. During the time of the Crusades, when the, when the Europeans invaded uh, Turkey, there was, they would some of the Turks would capture young Christians make them work as mercenaries, offer them the opportunity to rise in society based as mercenary and call them Yanisaries. The Spaniards, taking this clue, set up these colonies of what they called Henisaros to defend against hostile attacks. So in Santa Fe, where I was born, just south of the Santa Fe River, I don't know if you've ever been to Santa Fe, it's a beautiful city. There was a group set up to protect against an invasion of hostile Indians. And a number of other settlements the Spaniards created these settlements of Henisaros. They called them Henisaros. They were slaves. They were people who were pulled from their tribes by the Spaniards or by other tribes, and they established frontier buffers. They were granted some limited freedom. They could even acquire limited freedom and purchase their own slaves. In 1608, the, I'm sorry, in 1680, the Indians rebelled, pushed the Spaniards out, slaughtered a lot of the Henisaro communities, pushed the Spaniards, Spaniards came back in 1692, reestablished themselves, and eventually the Spanish crown outlawed slavery. However, it became obvious that people needed a labor source. So the Plains Indians would capture Indians, bring them into New Mexico and sell them. You may have seen pictures of Taos Pueblo or, or seen, uh, or heard of Taos Pueblo. That was a big slave market, as were a number of the other beautiful areas in New Mexico where natives were captured, bought, sold. These folks, did not have a tribe anymore. They were kidnapped. There are still folk songs in northern New Mexico where they talk about this phenomenon. Flash forward to now. You have established pueblos. You have established tribes. You have people that are recognized as Native Americans. But you also have a whole lot of people who have very high percentages of Native DNA who do not have a tribal affiliation because they're descendants of slaves. They can't trace their identity. So they don't qualify for affirmative action programs. They don't qualify for Indian health programs. They're not allowed to use eagle feathers and others, other material in their religious ceremonies. And they're kind of in this twilight zone. And so long story short, in the book that I wrote with my co-author, we talked about what it means to be indigenous. What does it mean to be an Indian? This is, there are some political connotations because of Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Is it just DNA? Is it just tribal affiliation? If you are an Indian, 
can you lose that status? And the answer is yes. Tribes kick people out all the time. Every time, many times when there's a political election, the winning faction in the tribe gets in and then kicks out the opponents. If you are a recognized tribe, you can set up casinos because the states are not free to interfere with that relationship. If they allow casinos, then the, the native tribes can operate their own gambling casinos. But if you are an indigenous person who doesn't have a tribal affiliation, you can't do that. So long story short, what happened in New Mexico is this slavery even outlived the 13th Amendment. It continued into the late 1800s, 1900s, and then it became known as a system of peonage. And as late as the 1960s, there were people that were still litigating, bringing cases claiming they had been held in debt bondage. There are equal protection problems, there are due process problems, there are slavery problems, and there's this huge political problem that we do need to be concerned about the aftermath of black slavery. But we also need to realize that there was a slavery that existed that had tremendous ramifications, that had thousands and thousands and thousands, if not millions of participants. And again, no race has a monopoly on virtue or vice. Indians held other Indians in slavery. Indians held white people in slavery. Indians held black people in slavery. Black people held Indians in slavery. Uh, it's a very complicated history. And as long as there's now a discussion about it, I think it's, it's an interesting topic. It's a legal topic, but it's, it's become a topic of concern to people who apply to law school and can't get in, want to create a business and don't qualify for minority loan, want to do almost any number of things that might be available if their ethnic identity was respected, and yet they're not. And then it's kind of morphed into a discussion about what do we do about monuments. Uh, there are a number of monuments in New Mexico now that are getting torn down because they, in the view of the critics, glorify the Europeans who came and brutalized the natives. On the other hand, there are people that are concerned that the spirit, the Catholic Church, the things that brought benefits to people who are now in the Southwest are going to be obliterated in this whole discussion. So. In any event, I hope this doesn't bore you. I've bored my family to death talking about these things over the last few years. Uh, but I just wanted to share with you, if you had any interest in looking at another aspect of slavery, if you haven't had your fill of slavery discussions yet, there's something else you need to think about. So I would recommend our book, Slavery in the Southwest. Okay, now I talk too much and I wanna hear from you. If anybody else has another question or any response to what I just, just mentioned. Um, okay, so not right now. There are 49 people in the room. Um, hey, Randy, can you hear me? What's that? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, Bill, this is Chris. I had a question about your book. Um, so um, are there, and of course, I haven't read your book yet, but are there, do you and Moises uh, get any of the political ramifications uh, with regard to the book and the other thing is these indigenous persons that have no tribe affiliation when it comes to filling out the the affirmative action information on, on a job application do they just have to put other because they can't claim to be American Indian or uh, something or how how do you see that they mark those applications because you got to check a box that's a real good question Chris okay and here's a I'll try to give a, a short answer you can be, you can say you're Indian if you're a member of a tribe and it's recognized by the federal government and there's a very complicated process that the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs has set out for tribes to get recognized. 
some tribes have waited 80 to 100 years with their applications pending because you have to identify the member roles, you have to show governing structure, you have to identify all the members of the tribe. It's, it's a very, very complex situation. But what you're asking is really critical. Let me tell you about a law review article we wrote having to do with law school admissions. I'm pretty familiar with that, where under the affirmative action program, if someone identifies themselves as a minority, they're going to qualify for affirmative action consideration. All right. There are no uh, minority police in the law school. So if someone says they're African-American or Hispanic, there's nobody that goes and knocks on your door and makes you produce an identity card because there are no identity cards. But if someone says they're Native American, the schools got nervous because some Native American groups, tribal members said, hey, wait a minute, uh, you're letting in people who are not really Indians. So the law schools decided, Harvard Law School said, all right, to be considered here, you have to prove your identity. You've got to produce a card that says you're a Native American. Well, the American Bar Association had announced this regulation that said, you either have to prove that you're an Indian by showing a tribal identity card or by making a presentation of your cultural heritage to show that you identify as a Native American. In other words, you can't just all of a sudden one day apply to law school and say I'm Native American. You had to, under the rules, say, here's my identity card, or the last 20 years I've belonged to this tribe, even though it's not recognized, we annually gather, we celebrate, we have these feasts, we do this, we do that. But the law schools, we found, were kind of ignoring that. In fact, we surveyed law schools. Law schools, the places in the country that should have the best idea on what the law is, were still reminding people they had to produce an identity card. It's like, show us your papers. So we have tried to point out that no other minority group has to do that. And even within the minority group of, of Native Americans, there are Native Americans who just don't have tribal identity cards. Although in New Mexico, they live in groups, they belong to a group, they consider themselves a tribe, and somebody somewhere is probably going to have to litigate this before we get to that determination. The, the federal Congress can recognize a tribe, and there's been several tribes that have been recognized by Congress, but otherwise it goes through this horrible administrative process. So it leads to questions like Elizabeth Warren says that she's Cherokee. Well, people get all upset. Think about it for just a minute. She doesn't have a tribal identity card. She hasn't lived in a tribal community. She doesn't have the DNA. So is she Indian? Well, Think about identity in another context. We just read a Supreme Court case involving transgender people. Do people have a right to determine their own gender identity? And apparently the answer to that is yes. Uh, even though the DNA would not indicate that somebody was a member of a particular gender, there is a recognized right now to an identity. Does that mean people have a right to a racial or an ethnic identity? Big questions that are not easily answered. Do people have a right to change identities? Can people move in and out of an identity? Can you be this person one day and something the next? Don't know, but I do know there are a lot of people who are the descendants of slaves who have been rejected by Indian culture, been rejected by Hispanic culture, rejected by Anglo culture, live in enclaves, practice tribal ceremonies, have practiced it for three or 400 years plan to continue practicing it that don't qualify as Native Americans. So what we did is we kind of tried to expose the history, the politics, the cultural impact, and some of the other ramifications of, of what has happened in the slavery system that existed in the American Southwest. Thanks. And then back to your Supreme Court cases that, and kind of on a little bit on topic of Native Americans, the, uh, the McGirt versus Oklahoma, we actually happened to listen in uh, online to the Supreme Court oral argument on that case and 
seems to me it had to do with, um, uh, it, it was more property issues and what uh, the state of Oklahoma could do with regard to the property and, and McGirt and some of the uh, uh, Indians. And I, I think the Bureau of Indian Affairs had an argument in there. It's, it's, that was really kind of a complicated case. So it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what the court does with that one. Yes. And at some point there's finality, you know, at some point there are things that happened in the past that we're not happy with, but you can't undo every bad thing that happened in the past. Okay. Um, Steve, our moderator has his hand up, so I'm going to unmute him. Hello. Hello. Hi, Steve. Uh, I, I, again, uh, I'm going to wrap up and uh, thank, thank you, Bill, for a really informative and engaging presentation. Uh, as always, and uh, I can't tell you how much we've benefited from and how much we appreciate it. I just want to end with a kind of a question and an observation. Almost all the cases that you've mentioned, not to mention the uh, very important, albeit overlooked, history uh, in your book, which I'd like you to tell us how to get, by the way, not, uh, all come back to reminding us of the single overwhelming fact that there is nothing about American history, and hence almost nothing about the American present, that doesn't involve identity in some form. For those of us who grew up in the 1960s believing that there was a single American identity and what was called the melting pot theory, and that the, the notion of uh, progressive values was to treat everybody and think of everybody as equal, it's become a very different world, and we have to adjust to it and understand it. Thank you. Uh, those, are, those are very good observations, and I, I do believe that there is an e pluribus unum, that we are different, and we form an identity. And, you know, I've taught immigration for a number of years, too, and I just I point out to people, more people want to, more people come to this country legally and illegally than any other country in the world. If this was a terrible place, nobody would want to be here. The opposite is true. It's a wonderful place. We're attracting people from all over the world. And uh, the book, by the way, is available from the Carolina Academic Press. It's also available on Amazon. I think it's $35 on Amazon. There's a 10% discount if you order directly from Carolina Academic Press. Well, again, thank you very much. Thank you. For those of you who, who are still on, uh, hopefully you, uh, some of you or many of you can stay with us. We're going to have in a few minutes, about 3 o'clock, another very interesting presentation by Chris Prentice, who you just heard, who's going to be talking about, uh, again, an aspect of the judicial process, uh, the legal process, that uh, some of us may not be terribly familiar with. It's a question of, uh, or it's a number of questions, surrounding uh, accessibility in administrative proceedings. What are administrative proceedings? We've been talking about administrative agencies quite a lot. And administrative proceedings is that whole huge range of issues and rulemakings and adjudications uh, and trials and appeals that go on in administrative and executive branch and independent agencies uh, uh, under authority from Congress, often under rules set by the executive branch and with the uh, 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 complex and still evolving oversight of the courts. So I know that a lot of you will want to stay tuned for that. It'll be very, very interesting. 